Acts chapter 16. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking just at verses 16 through 25. 16 through 25. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 16, 16 through 25. This is God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace, and brought them before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, having ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Our Heavenly Father, we just come before you in awe of what you've done for us uh, through your gospel, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful. And we consider it a tremendous privilege just to come together here and, and be encouraged and strengthened and edified, transformed by your word. And so we give you this time. We pray that you'd be glorified in it now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a section in one of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that says that that always causes me to pause and contemplate, but no matter how how hard I try, I can never comprehend its full meaning. He's telling the Corinthian church and these Corinthian believers about the wonders of the gospel of grace and how amazing it is that Christians, even if in the, in the midst of trials and tribulations and afflictions in this life, can live out their days with all confidence and all assurance and even with thankful hearts as bold witnesses for Christ. He then tells them where this confidence and this assurance comes from. Namely, from knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus bringing us into his presence for life everlasting. Therefore, he says, the believer does not lose heart. The believer in Christ does not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's the phrase right there I can never completely wrap my head around. 
we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the unseen things which are eternal. Well, what unseen things is he talking about here? Our lives and our days are dominated by the things that are seen. I mean, that's how we operate in this world, right? We are surrounded by, we are inundated by the things that are seen. So what things is he talking about here when he says the unseen things? Well, the rest of the scriptures and the rest of his letters speak about some of these unseen things. Uh, They talk about God, who is spirit. John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, but no one has ever seen God. Yeah, I've never seen God. That's because God's a spirit. Yet, I'm told repeatedly to look upon him, to seek him that he may be found. What about Jesus? Well, some say, oh yeah, we've seen Jesus. Well, The apostles saw Jesus, and many uh, folks in the first century Palestine saw Jesus, God in human flesh, both pre- and post-resurrection, but I've never seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? I've never seen Jesus. No. Again, John tells us that Jesus himself said to his disciples, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Okay, so God the Father, God the Son, certainly we can't see God the Spirit because he's a spirit. And Jesus' words remind us that belief is something that is unseen. In other words, our faith is unseen. The writer of Hebrews said the same thing. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen seen. Well, how then do we know what to place our hope in? How can we determine what those convictions are? Well, as we heard last week, we are dependent upon the same unseen God to reveal these things to us by opening our hearts to his truth, the truths of his holy character, his grace, his mercy, his love, his care, his compassion, his forgiveness, and steadfast love that is revealed to us in his Son who is revealed to us through his word. His word, which he tells us to hide in our hearts. Now, I can't see into any of your hearts, and you can't see into any of my, uh, my heart either. Can't see to any of my heart. Can't see to my heart either. I can't see into my heart. Yet I know these things we just spoke of are true. I know they're there. And I know many of you would say they're present in your heart as well. Now, the Father, the Son, The Holy Spirit, his gospel, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the gospel of grace, these these things are to be our focus. These things are to be our trust. And it's when we focus on and trust in these things that they will carry us through the light momentary afflictions suffered here on this earth as we think of yet another unseen reality, the life to come. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, because every time I read this passage in 2 Corinthians, it inevitably causes my mind to consider later instruction given to uh, the church in Ephesus, where Paul talks about additional things that are unseen. Not just the grace, the hope, the love of the triune God and the gospel of grace, not just the word which we are to store up in our hearts that we can draw from any time we are afflicted, but rather 
He tells of an invisible war that's being waged all around us. He tells these believers in Ephesus, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So you think, what kind of armor here? The kind of armor that a knight wears? Or the kind of armor that a a member of the SWAT team wears? Or a Navy SEAL? A military man? No, he says God's armor is invisible or unseen. Put on that belt, but not the one that's hanging in your closet. I'm talking about the belt of truth. I'm not talking about a breastplate of steel. I'm talking about a breastplate of righteousness. Shoes for the, that are the gospel of peace. Take up your shield, Christian soldier, the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation. Prepare yourselves to thrust the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Put on the whole armor of God, he says. Now, what in the world would we need invisible armor for? Answer, invisible enemies, which are even more dangerous, more terrifying than those that we can see. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Well, where are the heavenly places? You mean like the the heaven that believers go to when they die? Is that what he's talking about? No, he's talking about the entire realm of spiritual beings, the spirit realm, the spirit realm, uh, spiritual realm in heaven, in hell, and here on earth. Okay, here, there, everywhere, all around us, all around us right now, there's a war being waged for the souls of men and women. An invisible war with with angels and demons constantly battling with Satan, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to consume, to devour. Looking to devour the souls of men, this unseen roaring lion. And you think about this, it's almost overwhelming to consider, which is why it's so easy then to go back to focusing on the things that are seen. Right? Right? But Paul says, don't focus on those things. He says, think about the unseen world. Give more of your attention to the things of the spiritual realm than you do the transitory things of this earth. Give more attention to the things of the spirit than the things of the flesh. In fact, he says, live by the spirit. And Paul, he had firsthand knowledge of these things, didn't he? If I'm going to take anyone's word for it, how to how this unseen war looks, it's going to be the Apostle Paul and Christ himself. Because these two had more encounters with Satan and his demons than anyone else in all of Scripture. And here's a good example of it right here in Acts chapter 16. Paul speaks to a demon. He gives orders to a demon. He casts out a demon, and he does so authoritatively. And this encounter is particularly unsettling, though, as it involves a young girl, a slave girl. Luke writes in verse 16, 
As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Here's a woman who was on the other end of the socioeconomic scale from the one that we read about last week, Lydia. Last week, we saw a woman who, at least according to societal standards, really had it going on. She had it all going on. She was a devout, God-fearing woman. She was an industrious woman. She was a free woman in terms of her being a Roman citizen. She was a woman with uh, great means and resources, even offering up her home to the missionaries. But now we see this slave girl, this maiden or damsel, typically a young, teenage, unmarried woman who acted as a servant to her master. Remember the young lady who uh, examined Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. She said, aren't you one of those guys who was with Jesus? And he said, no, I don't know. I don't know Jesus. And uh, she said again, no, no, you were with him. I'm, I'm sure of it. And he says, nope, it wasn't me. I don't know the guy. Then others joined and they said, no, you're a Galilean. You know him. And he again denied it. He was cowering before the servant girl, the slave girl. It's the same thing here. That girl was a servant or slave girl, but of the high priest. Well, this maiden, this slave girl, was enslaved to a different master. In fact, multiple masters. I want you to look at her threefold bondage in verse 16, okay? Luke says, we were going to the place of prayer, and here comes the slave girl. First, she had a spirit of divination. Okay, that's literally a python spirit or a pythonian spirit. Okay, in that time and place, uh, worship of the mythological god Apollo was very prevalent. Some folks said that Apollo had a strange fascination and obsession with snakes and the python in particular uh, to the point where he actually spoke through them, giving instructions to his followers. Now others think that uh, the python guarded the abode of Apollo or the oracle of Delphi at the base of Mount Parnassus, but all that is Greek nonsense. The spirit inside of her had nothing to do with Apollo because Apollo didn't even exist. No, this was a myth. This woman was possessed by a demon who spoke through her. She was a medium uh, for demonic forces. So number one, she was in bondage to this demon. Second, she was in bondage, she was enslaved to her earthly owners. That's what Luke calls them in verses 16 and 19, right? Owners. Verse 16, She brought her owners much gain. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they were her owners. She belonged to these people. These men and women, they owned her. Now, we don't know much about them, but we do know they ruled over her. So she was enslaved to both a demon and she was enslaved to both and to other human beings. Thirdly, we know that at this point she was enslaved to her own sin nature, just like all of us were at some point, or maybe uh, some still are today as you're hearing my voice. All those who haven't been purchased out of the slave market of sin and death by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, just like that, at this point, this girl was in bondage to her original sin nature, having inherited it from previous generations all the way back to Adam who acted as man's representative in the garden. Adam disobeyed God, he sinned, and we all bear the consequence of that sin, and they're therefore all conceived and born in sin. 
That's just how it is. So, she's a young, possessed, exploited, enslaved woman who's in bondage to her own sin nature, and she's heading for an eternity apart from her creator. Naturally, then, she'd make a perfect herald for the gospel, right? Well, she was employed by Daystar and TBN, maybe, because those are exactly the type of women they like to promote. Maybe not the young part so much. But this girl, this slave girl, was an unfit herald, but she was a herald indeed. Now look at verse 17. Luke says, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, she's not wrong, is she? She's pretty spot on, actually. She has a, a better missiology than a lot of people I know, to be honest. But what, what's really nuts to think about is it's actually the spirit inside of her who's making this claim. This demonic spirit. And while some may, think, uh, may be tempted to think that this is a good thing, I'm here to tell you this is not a good thing, okay? no matter how accurate it is. We don't want to align with or link, arm with, uh, link arms with evil in any capacity, okay? even if what they're saying is true. I don't like to hear politicians or football players or televangelists or whoever else give glory to God and praise his name if they aren't actual followers of Christ. If they're just going to end up cheating people or beating people or mistreating people, I don't want the name of Christ to be on their lips. There was a UFC fighter a couple of years back who was an amazing fighter. He was a great athlete. He was at the top of his game, and he had uh, Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his chest. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Of course, he was using it out of context like so many. That's not that big of a deal, but the bigger deal was this. He kept getting suspended for uh, steroids and other drugs like weed and coke. He kept getting busted for DUIs and illegally carrying guns and multiple acts of violence against women, including one who was pregnant, all with that stupid little tattoo on his chest. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, now, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I don't think those are the all things that Paul was referring to. I think he'd do better to keep the name out of, of Jesus out of his mouth, get that thing removed. Now, here in verse 17, we're not talking about some UFC fighter. We're talking about an actual straight-up demonic spirit, a real representative of the group Paul told us about earlier, the principalities, the rulers the, over this present evil age, real demons which, which existed then and still exist today, uh, who influenced people then and still influence people today, who possessed people then and still possess unbelieving men and women today. Oh yeah, demons are real. Satan is real. This one was crying out all over Philippi, these men are servants of the Most High God, over and over and over again. Now that's a bold claim. Okay, and, and again, what's so interesting here is that demons are the ones who are saying it. So naturally we have to ask, what's their motivation? Why are they saying this? Well, we saw the same thing during Christ's earthly ministry, right? He would come up to them and 
He'd walk up to them, they'd shriek, they'd tremble and beg the Son of God to not cast them into the abyss, to not cast them into the outer darkness. They'd cower before Jesus and plead with him, don't torment me before the appointed time. And many of them, while groveling at his feet, would identify him. They'd say, we know who you are. We know exactly who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of the Most High God. They knew him, and he knew them. Yet, what he'd typically say in response to their faux praise and adulation, he'd say, be silent. He'd say, shut up and come out of that person, a command which they always immediately obeyed. And the reason he did this, he didn't want demons being the ones who testified of his greatness. He didn't want them to be their herald, their witness, his, his witness, So here we have this spirit, and the spirit is saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Did the demons want these folks to be saved? Of course not. I think James Boyce made a great point in his commentary on Acts. He said in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 14, we see the thoughts that went on in Satan's mind when he rebelled against God and brought sin into the universe. And we see this title occur again. There Satan is quoted saying, I will make myself like the most high. That means when Satan aspired to be like God, it was not to be like God in his most loving or gracious aspects. He did not want to be God in love or mercy or even wisdom. He wanted to be like God in respect to his possession of heaven and earth. That is, Satan wanted to take over the universe. And boy said, I go into that background because the name Most High God is especially appropriate on the lips of this woman since the demon who was associated with Satan in his, in his rebellion spoke through her. The demons called God the Most High because that is what they want to be. They want to possess heaven and earth, but they cannot. In fact, the opposite is the case. What was happening here was that God, through the word of the missionaries, had come to challenge them and begin to take away from them even the tiny little bit of earthly dominion they had. That's the motivation behind the demonic cries of affirmation. And Luke says this demon was going about crying out. In verse 18, he says this went on for many days. This is the imperfect tense, which means repeatedly. He's crying out over and over and over again to the point where Paul is, is, is annoyed by it. And the better word here is disturbed. And he's, he's, it's to say, you know, I have pity here, but I can't take this girl anymore. And this is understandable, right? Uh, I mean, the first few times she said it, that was kind of nice. It was kind of a nice introduction. It was a good icebreaker. But over and over and over again, what that's going to mean is these people are going to think that she's with us. And this girl's nuts. And that means they're going to think we're nuts. And he didn't want that. We already have a hard enough time with the message. We've already been mocked. We've already been beaten and threatened. Now we've got this girl shouting over and over and over again. These guys are servants of the Most High God. Dan and Terry. I'm glad you guys are here this morning, but let me ask, what if uh, we had, uh, the elders here had a couple gals following you around this morning saying, uh, here are Dan and Terry, servants of the Most High, serving down at Camp Elam, telling folks how to get saved. And they'd just follow you around. They'd say, here are Dan and Terry, 
servants of the Most High God serving down at Camp Elam, telling folks how to get saved over and over and over again. What about you, Cam? What if we had someone follow you, you around your job site? Here's Cameron. He's the master electrician on the job. He's a Christian evangelist. Here's Cameron. He's the master electrician on this job. He's a Christian evangelist. You might have the drywall guys and the plumbers say, ooh, let's not have Cameron over here to do the rough-in just yet. Let me wait till we go on break first. Well, that's what was happening with this young girl. She, she, she had a demon. This demon was spreading some truth so that later he could bear false witness, lead many astray. And that sounds familiar, right? Uh, lots of so-called religious leaders out there proclaiming some truth, a little bit of truth, even in evangelicalism, but it's not long before the doctrines of demons take center stage. That's how they operate. But look what Paul does to this particular spirit in the second part of verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, disturbed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And guess what? It came out of her that very hour, instantly, immediately, just like they did with Jesus. So that's one slave master taken care of, and at that moment, this girl was no longer possessed by an evil spirit. She had been liberated in that sense. Now, just a few takeaway from this meeting before we move on to what happens next. Like we said, she was liberated, liberated from her enslavement to the demon. We'll go on to see that her owners have no, no more use for her now, so that's taken care of as well. That's two out of three. But what about her sin nature? What about her everlasting soul, which is still under the wrath and the condemnation of her creator, unless she is set free by the grace of God, by faith in the gospel of Christ? She's still in bondage, right? So what happened to the everlasting soul of this girl? Like, eternally speaking here. I have no idea. I, I think it'd be wrong to just assume that she was saved because she had a demon cast out of her. Luke doesn't even allude to this being a possibility. Yet some commentators and preachers, even really reputable commentators and preachers, some of my favorite commentators and preachers say that very thing, that we should assume that she was saved. But why? I don't assume that about anyone. Uh, there's a lot of folks who walk around thinking they're saved. There's a lot of people who come into church with a false assurance of salvation, which many uh, religious leaders in the church are quickly to affirm as being authentic. But why? Just because they say so? This girl didn't even say so. I don't know if this girl was saved. I hope she was. I hope we're standing alongside her praising the Lord for 10,000 times 10,000 years in glory, but I can't tell you that for sure. I hope her owners ended up being saved as well and the magistrates, but we're given just as much information regarding their eternal destiny as we are with this girl, which is none. So don't just read things into the text like that. I don't know why they would do that. It's bizarre. And next week, we'll see a guy who asks point blank. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and the others say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then we're told that's exactly what happens. That's from Philippi to uh, Paradise Part 2, by the way. But not this girl. She's from Philippi to, well, I don't know. 
But here's what I would say. May we live out our lives in such a way that nobody questions whether or not we belong to Christ. May we not bring reproach upon the name of Christ because of how we act or how we treat people or how we talk to other people. And ultimately, besides the individual person, there's only one who knows for certain if a person is actually saved, and that is the one who gave us our lives, sustains our lives, and has the power to grant us eternal life in his presence. But he is also the one, he's also the same one who gives his children that assurance we spoke of earlier, that that Paul spoke of earlier, which means that you too can leave this place absolutely confident that you belong to him if... You have put your faith and trust in his gospel of grace, in his message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And there are plenty of texts which bolster our assurance. The whole book of 1 John is one of them, for example. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Romans chapter 8, so on and so on and so on. But I have no assurance or evidence that this slave girl was converted. Second takeaway from this encounter. Should we then, like Paul, go around casting out demons? Talking with demons? Answer, no. That's not for us. Paul had been given apostolic authority to cast out demons, and the demons knew this. A few chapters from now, Luke will write this. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them And the spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Siva were doing this, but this evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt out on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. If we go on out of here messing around with demons, that very thing could happen to us. I was at a charismatic church uh, down the road a couple of years ago, not by choice. Alex, a mentor of mine, told me to go, go down there see what they were doing in that place. So I went. It wasn't too long before the preacher started jumping around. And he started shaking out, out his hand like this, and he looked at his watch and said, You tell that old devil his time is ending. And I said, uh, Tell the devil? You mean like talk to Satan? Threaten Satan? You're going to threaten Satan and his demons? And the people around me, they were just eating it up. They're like, Yeah, I'm looking at my watch now, too. So I just kind of slowly stepped out of there. It was so uncomfortable. It was so dark. It was dark. You couldn't believe it. We don't have any business talking to demons because we don't have any authority to talk with demons. You want to do something for someone who may be struggling with demonic influence? Pray to the Lord. He's the one who has the authority. He can deliver out a a person out of demonic possession just like this. We can do nothing. 
We just heard the demons recognize Paul as authoritative. They knew Paul could do it. Yet even Paul says here in verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. Even Paul was like, man, that's not me. That's Jesus' authority who I'm, I'm bearing here. Yet we got this Yahoo down the street looking at his watch and shaking it at Satan. It's unreal. Finally, though, we don't know if this girl was saved or not. I wanted to make this clear. When a person is delivered from the bondage of their own sin nature, when they are set free from sin by grace through faith, they go from being slaves to freedmen right back to being slaves again in an instant. Okay, hear me now. We were enslaved to our sin nature. We are in bondage to our sin nature. All we knew was sin. We had to sin. We couldn't even choose to do good, spiritually speaking, okay? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We were spiritually dead. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, which even the so-called good things in this world are rooted in sin if not done with the proper motivation. If it's not done to glorify the Lord, it's sin. And before he saved us, that's all we did because we were slaves to sin. However, when we were saved, rescued, delivered, set free, we are truly liberated. But we are not liberated to do whatever we want. We are simply liberated from the bondage to our old sin nature. Now we have been set free from sin, which means we can now choose not to sin. Now we can choose to do right, to perform good works and with the proper motivation, not for self-exaltation, but for the glory of God alone. God, who is our new master. Our new master. And, and we are now his slaves. Willingly. Gladly. Praise the Lord, we get to be his slaves. Slaves to righteousness. As Paul says in Romans 6, he says, Do you not know if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that who, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's the long way and the right way of saying we go from slaves to freed men and women right back to being slaves. But now we have a different master, a holy master, a righteous master. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That, in other words, we can't do righteousness because we're enslaved to our sin. We can't do anything righteous. But what fruit were you getting at the time from, those, uh, from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me just ask you straight up this morning. Who is your master? What are you enslaved to this morning? Or better yet, who are you enslaved to this morning? Enslaved to this culture? This world? Enslaved to your own sin? 
your own flesh? Are you enslaved to religiosity, maybe? It's certainly true of the overwhelming amount of people and majority of people in this world, but how about you? Do you know what it is to be truly liberated? Have you received the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord? I wanted to quote this last week, but I ran out of time, which is quickly happening again today. Uh, John MacArthur said this of the shifting culture in America, and mind you, he said this in 1973, okay? Listen to this. He said, I can't help but think of the women's liberation movement when I read about Lydia. It's amazing to me that the world and all these people who are talking about liberation haven't got the faintest idea of what liberation is. The idea that liberation is going to work, putting your kids in a daycare center, better yet, having abortions whenever you want, that that liberation is being free to fool around sexually with anyone you want, that liberation is blatant lesbianism where you join a group and put on a parade, that that liberation is shirking the responsibility of the home, that that liberation is violating the God-given patterns of love and submission. That is ridiculous, he says. That is not liberation. What these people are really doing is exchanging one kind of human bondage for a worse kind. The women who are always wanting everything that men have, whoever said that men were liberated? (laughs) That isn't liberation. You know what they're really doing is like the prisoner who exchanged cells and thought that he got released. That is not liberation. And do we see it today? Oh, do we see it today? The transgender movement. If I can just change my outward appearance to match how I feel on the inside, I will be free. The abortion industry, which since the time of that quote, has seen the slaughter of over 63 million babies, mostly in the name of convenient sex or an inconvenienced lifestyle. And the location with the highest abortion rate? Well, Washington, D.C., of course. About 40%. Now we're seeing the fruit of it, right? The Lord has judged this nation, has given us over to the lusts of our flesh. We are in bondage to the lusts of the flesh as a nation. We are living in a modern-day Rome, the worst parts of Rome. Certainly what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1, we're in it. Praise the Lord, this isn't all there is, right? Could you imagine if this life was all there was? Could you imagine it? No hope of the life to come, this is it? (laughs) No hope of life in the presence of our Lord? I couldn't do it without the hope of Christ. I could not do it. I wouldn't live in this world. But there is hope in the gospel. There is hope for the sinner in the gospel, for you and for me and for the gal who's had an abortion and for the transgender and for the homosexual, for the adulterer and the drunkard and the fool in the gospel of Christ. Because that's who he came for. Men and women such as those, if they would but hear his word, believe in his gospel and bend the knee to him in submission as Lord, turning from their sin and turning to their creator by his grace through faith. So ask yourself, who is my master? Who am I enslaved to? The inhabitants of this world, the 
human or demonic spirits of this world or the one who made the world. The one who spoke this world into existence by the word of his power. Who's your master? Look with me now at verse 19. 19 through 21. It's supposed to say 21 in your outline there. Point four in your outline. The owner of the slave girl, they're real gems, let me tell you. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, that that was their hope, by the way. Don't miss that. Money. Sinful human enterprise exploiting little girls for profit. A hope shared by so many even today. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. All of a sudden, these guys are real patriots, right? They want to defend Rome, and they want to defend the honor of Rome from these rotten old Jews. I'm telling you here, there's nothing new under the sun. This still happens today to the Jews living today. They're still surrounded by people who want to wipe them off the face of the earth. But these guys had to get their vengeance, right? So they brought them before the magistrates who were like rulers or elders or judges over this town. There's usually one or two per colony. They had the final say. And they brought them before these rulers and they said, man, these Jews, they have got no respect for Rome. You got to do something here. You got to take care of these guys. Now, interestingly, if you, in verse 25, and again next week, we'll see that only Paul and Silas got thrown into prison. Dr. Luke, he wasn't a Jew. Timothy wasn't a full-on Jew. So it's clear that anti-Semitism, much like today, ran rampant across the whole Roman colony. In fact, it would be right about this time that the emperor Claudius would make a decree that all Jews had to get out of Rome. Just telling you, there's nothing new under the sun. Acts 18 even tells us, after this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There you go. So these uh, Philippian magistrates were just following orders, right? So anyway, they say, man, uh, these guys are profaning our fine culture. Defend the honor of Rome. But we know their real motivation, right? They lost their cash cow. This reminds me of Judas condemning Mary of Bethany last week. Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? John says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. Well, these guys didn't care at all about this little slave girl. Notice, Luke didn't say they rejoiced because of her newfound freedom. That wasn't important to them. She just got delivered from a, holy, from a demonic spirit. They should be rejoicing at this, but they don't care. They don't care. It's the opposite. They were mad because they couldn't exploit her in that way any longer. Their gravy trail was derailed by, derailed by these servants of the Most High, and so they made sure Paul and Silas got what they had coming to them. That's what's going on here. It's so obvious. And Luke says in verse 22, it wasn't just the owners, but the whole crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat Paul and Silas with rods. 
And these rods here, they're a bunch of little rods like this that are connected to make one long rod. It's not like the flagellum or the cat of nine tails that they use on Christ where they would use fragments of bone and metal to rip apart his skin. Uh, that wasn't, they weren't looking to rip the skin off their backs. They were just looking to deeply bruise the muscles, causing deep muscle bleeding, which was excruciatingly painful. So what they did was they took all the clothes off these guys and then thud after thud after thud, they causing deep trauma and muscle bleeding uh, on the naked back and legs. And while the Jews, they had a rule that you couldn't go over 40 lashes, right? So they always stayed 39 uh, less one uh, lashes. But the Romans, they had no such guidelines. So there's no telling how many times these guys were hit with this thing. Uh, Luke just says, many blows. Now, Paul would go on to reference this scene to the same church he was encouraging at the beginning of this message, to the Corinthians. Five times at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Well, this is one of the three times. Once I was stoned, he said. We saw that back in Lystra. Yet remember, he said, this war is not with flesh and blood. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, right? Verse 23, when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering that the jailer would keep them safely. Now, we're, we're going to hear all about this jailer next week, a whole sermon to explain how this guy went from slave to freedman to slave again, how he went from Philippi to paradise, but for now he's just an order taker. So he puts him in jail. He puts him in the stocks, which were these really uncomfortable wooden planks which spread out their legs and bound them so that they couldn't get up, they couldn't move. He put them in the inner prison. And things aren't looking too good for old Paul and Silas, are they? They're not looking good. I can hear Silas, see Silas looking over at Paul saying, are you sure that guy in the vision told you to come to Macedonia? (laughs) Maybe he said Cappadocia. (laughs) No, he didn't say that. You know what they did instead? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. Praying and singing hymns to God. Bodies beaten, egos bruised, ethnic heritage slandered. Legs and stocks falsely accused the worst of the worst conditions in this Roman jail cell. And what was their crime? Ultimately, for delivering a young girl from demonic possession. If anyone had the right to claim victim status, it was Paul and Silas. Yet they were no victims. They didn't claim victim status or cry and complain about their plight in this earthly life. Why not? Because they had confidence and assurance that no matter what happened to them, the one who raised Jesus from the dead would also raise them to eternal life. They knew that this light momentary affliction was preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as they looked not to the things that were seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. They knew they were in, carrying out the will of the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth to the very exact, precise detail. 
They were in his will. They were exactly where he wanted them to be. And Lord willing, we're going to see why in our time together next week. Amen?